Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations. I am your host, Ivan Lozano. I use he, him, and they, them pronouns. And this season is a partnership between Archives and Futures and the DePaul Art Museum. We're calling it the Latinx American Podcast in honor of their exhibition, Latinx American, on view from January 7th through August 15, 2021. The exhibition features 38 Latinx artists from Chicago and beyond, 10 of which we will be interviewing for this season of the pod. The DePaul Art Museum's Latinx American exhibition and its accompanying programs like this one are provided through the generous support of the Andrew Warhol Foundation for the Visual Arts. Learn more about the exhibition and upcoming events at artmuseum.depaul.edu. And please share, subscribe, and rate this podcast so we can reach a larger audience. This episode, I'm chatting with Diana Solis. I really, really love talking to her. As a queer Mexican-American artist myself, it is such an honor to get to chat with someone who widened the lane and cleared a path for so many from my generation. So with that out of the way, let's get into the interview with Diana Solis, which happened over Zoom on February 21st, 2021. Enjoy! Hi, my name is Diana Solis, and uh, I'm a Chicago-based uh, artist. Uh, born in Mexico, raised in uh, Pilsen, and 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 had the I think fortunate experience of being able to go back to Mexico to study and to work there, live there and work there, uh, which uh, for me was important, and and obviously I think it was it's a big part of who I am today. Yeah. So I am a visual artist. Um, I work primarily well. I work in different disciplines, but uh, I'm an illustrator a photographer and an educator, but I, you know, in my work, I work outside of the studio as well. Outside of my studio practice, I work as also doing public artwork in terms of murals and uh, large scale installations. Yeah. So Diana, you mentioned that you were born in Mexico. That was in Monterrey, right? Yes, I'm from Monterrey, Nuevo León, originally. Um, visited many times. We the family pilgrimage during the Christmas vacation in summer. My dad would pile us up in the old station wagon uh, and and take all of us down there, and we'd spend you know a good month or two down there, and then we'd come back to Chicago. And this was a, a regular thing with our family. Not every family did this kind of trips, but but many did, and so I have great memories. And, uh, and and also memories of struggling with my cousins. They're calling us gringos, and we kept saying we're not, we're not, we're not. You know, uh, things like that. But all in the end of it all, it was just wonderful and and a great way to uh, you know sort of have that connection to who you are. Yeah. Because I realized from a very early age who I am I said I am a Mexicana my dad always drummed it into us and later as I became a teenager and went to high school I got involved in the Chicano movement in Chicago and my dad says you're not a Chicana you know and I decided that I would identify as Mexicana Chicana for the rest of my life uh, because I, I was I felt very tied to the Chicano to the ideals of what the Chicano movement uh, uh, meant to me and what they were doing and I felt it was a part of my story as well. And the what age were you when you moved to Pilsen? You know I was practically born here my yeah. I came my dad was already here 
he had gotten a job at a at, in the railroad, uh, uh, Rock Island Railroad. A lot of Mexicanos, uh, yeah. a lot of men were working in the railroads. Uh, he had worked this. He had worked previously picking cotton in Texas. He's actually was born in Texas, but raised in Monterrey. And he has a you know family there in Texas. As, you know, we've also visited them as well uh, throughout our frequent trips back and forth. And um, uh, I was three months old when I arrived with my mother. Um, so I was almost born here. Not quite, but yeah, I mean, you know, we're, it, there's some deep ties there. That's an interesting thing that keeps coming up, you know, with, uh, with Mexicans and Mexican Americans on the podcast, that sort of experience of Mexico, Texas, and Chicago, usually because of the railroad also, but you know, the Bracero program as well, of course. And my experience has also sort of been similar to that. My family on my dad's side is from Texas on my mom's side is from Guadalajara in Mexico. And I had sort of the opposite experience. Instead of going from Chicago to Monterrey, I was Guadalajara to San Antonio uh, every winter, every summer to spend uh, time with family there. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting how, you know, those three places kind of keep coming up. Well, Mexico, of course, and Texas, and then Chicago as, as this uh, sort of shared experience of migration. Well, the border, you know, it's uh, uh, even before, you know, that border always changes. You yeah. know, it's constantly breathing and, and living. It's a living yeah. entity, I think, you know, and, and you know, throughout history, what suits the, the U.S. is how it determines oftentimes that relationship to people from the border and to coming into other parts of the U.S., migrating to other parts, or if they're from Mexico, getting through and across the border in all the ways that people do. Uh, to to come to this side, many end up staying. Yeah. Uh, not all, but some end up staying in Texas. Some have already family from generations because of that relationship. You know, the colonialism, that relationship. You know, yeah. has started many years before Trump. Many years before uh, you know all the presidents who were really evil, right? Uh, yeah. Who are evil? Which is most of them. Majority. <laughs> uh -huh. Oh, I'm sorry. No problem. Can we pause? I gotta pick Absolutely. up. Absolutely, go for it. I printed some work out for me. Oh, good. Uh, we're working on a project, but uh, some very cool stuff I'll show you later. Nice. Let me put this down. Yeah, no problem. What do you think it is that so many of us have that relationship directly or indirectly with the border? Because it is migration, but why we, we have to cross over, right? Either, unless you, you fly over, you know? Totally. I also think, you know, it's also something about, I think, language and just identity, you know, it's like that border is a physical thing, but it's also sort of a representation of that, you know, ni de aquí ni de allá, and that, uh, that feeling that it doesn't matter where we are, we're like, not fully of the place, you know, I think that the term Chicano also has, you know, is relevant in that case, because even though, you know, you could sort of locate that term as something like specific, maybe to a point in the development of like, an identity or something. The root of it is that it wasn't full Mexicano. It was just a Chicano side, right? So there's definitely problems with it, but I think it points to that, to that um, that migration, that moving from one place to another, and sort of having to define yourself when um, your identity split. Right, and I think you know, um, a lot of people recognize that some more than others, 
uh, you know, they're good examples. All my brother, I have brothers and sisters, and they they were born and raised here, and they always say I'm the only one who says Mexicana. Uh, my brother, other brother, I had another brother. He passed away. We were both of the very much, you know, like-minded in our identity, you know. But my other younger, I'm the oldest of seven. My younger brothers and sisters all say they're American. They don't relate as being Mexicano, and definitely not Chicano, because it's very foreign to them, you know. Yeah. Uh, the the concept and the idea of Chicanismo, right? So, but I mean, and I understand that, you know. Uh, so yeah, that that was sort of my growing up, you know, going back and forth. And um, uh, I grew up in Pilsen, which is a primarily a Mexican neighborhood. By the time we we arrived in 1956 to the United States to Chicago, uh, myself and my mom, my dad, like I said, was already here for a few months before us. And uh, we first lived in the in the North Side in Uptown. And, and it's a, a much more, it was a much more diverse neighborhood in the sense that it had people from uh, the Appalachians, it had people from uh, Puerto Ricans. It was the first time my mother met uh, another uh, Latin American other than Mexicana because, you know, she never really went outside of Monterrey. Yeah. She never really got to the FM. My dad traveled, my dad did all that stuff, my mom did not. And so she met uh, the Puerto Rican ladies on the block. And one of them was our babysitter, Licha. And, you know, gave my brother a Puerto Rican nickname to this day. So everybody, when I say my brother Papo, people think we're Puerto Rican. You know, <laughs> that's a very common uh, name uh, in Puerto Rican culture, right? So, but, so, you know, we moved, we lived there for about a year and we moved to East Pilsen. Well, we call it East Pilsen because on the other side of the, well, the highway, I think, was, wasn't built yet. And um, and we lived there following, we came following cousins of ours. And one of my cousins who's now, you know, really wonderful muralist, renowned muralist in Pilsen. Uh, we'll talk about that, about the arts and the things that influenced me as I grew up. But so we had this, you know, all this relationship, right, with migration, people coming and going, yeah. people coming, establishing themselves, you know, uh, sort of like, you know, sembrando semillas, right? Yeah. And, 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 and growing up, you know, uh, developing and making it our own, right? I mean, so when we decided to, we moved then to Bridgeport, which was a mixed Irish and Italian community and lots of strife. We got beat up every day. It was just hard for us to be there because we were not well liked. Yeah. Um, and we lived in back of the Catholic church. And in fact, it was the, the, the altar boys who used to beat us up, <laughs> the Italian altar boys. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, you know, we, we lived there for, for a few, a couple of years. And then in fourth grade, like uh, I must've been, uh, I don't know, let's see, uh, 1964 or something. We moved, we, we just came to Pilsen proper. Again, yeah. our cousins found an apartment nearby where I live today. And we settled in for good. We decided this was it. My mom was thrilled because of course she knew that the neighborhood had uh, Latinos and there was, but by the, by 64, there were, was a huge influx coming in of Mexicanos and the previous tenants of the community were Czech and Bohemian. And before that they were Irish. And so Eastern Europeans, there was, you know, Polish, Ukrainians, there were mainly Czech and Bohemian 
from the for, former, you know, Czech Republic. And the buildings and everything had, because they were craftsmen, they were also, they had, you know, uh, gymnasts, gym societies, they had literary societies, they were very well, you know, they brought all their culture with them and they made it their own. But they did the white flight thing, you know, too. Yeah. They were like, in estos locos, right? We gotta get ready. I remember we moved early 60s and my landlord was Mrs. Schmola and she was, you know, Czech, nice lady. We didn't understand anything she said and I don't think she understand us, but, you know, um, so I went to school with kids, you know, I started going to school with, with kids that were, you know, Czech, Bohemian background and Polish. Yeah. And we all became friends as kids. We, we became friends, you know, and then little by little, they, they left, they disappeared. By the time I got to high school, there was very few of them left. Uh, high school was up till 69 to 73. I graduated in 73. So my kind of, um, you know, becoming involved in the arts or noticing was first through my family because yeah. my uncle, Sal Vegas' dad, Chewy's dad, he was a painter. He wanted to be a painter and he was taking classes at the Art Institute. My dad desperately wanted to be an artist, but he was a good writer. So he wrote poetry and he snuck into classes with my uncle. I think they, they snuck into the life drawing classes, but you know, uh, and they hung out. They they were like bohemios. That's what the na my neighbors called them. They were a bunch of bohemios and bohemians, but not mm -hmm. in the Eastern European way. And uh, they wore little berets and they had gold teats and they spent a lot of time at El Trebo, one of the bars. Needless to say, my our aunts and my mom were not thrilled because these guys were the breadwinners. Went down the wrong path, yeah. You know, you know, they were hard working class dudes who needed to have a drink and. A lot of times it got, you know, went a little beyond and, you know, they yeah. had families. So, um, you know, we grew up with that. We grew up with a lot of music. Uh, we grew up with my dad sending us to the Old Town School of Folk Music because he wanted nice. us to, you know, learn. He wanted us to, to not be like him and like my mom. He wanted us not to necessarily be he wanted us to reap the benefits of what this country offered. Of immigration, yeah. But he never said, I wanted you to be an American. He said, you're Mexican first, American second, but take all you can from this country because it's got <laughs> you, know, you, you have a right. He sounds like a fun guy. <laughs> he was, you know, but, uh, and, uh, you know, he had a lot of contradictions too, but you know, his, his love of music, jazz in particular, I have not met a Mexican who loved jazz so much. Yeah, they were <laughs> some, but in, in the block, we were the weird ones. My dad dressed weird. He would take us to museums on the weekends. He hung out with my uncle and his buddies. Uh, he used to take us to the tree art painting studios and we saw like naked people for the first time. My mom was like, why are you taking the kids there? You know, it's not good for them. They're too young to see that it's art. He would say it's art. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, we had that sort of exposure to it at an early age and his love of films. So, you know, he would take us to, and my mom, they, they would take us to this uh, theater called the Playboy Theater and it had an all night double feature. And they were all, I guess at the time they weren't called this, but they were art house films. Nice. So we saw- um, Playboy you know, Theater? It was called? Uh, yeah, the Playboy Theater is no longer there. It used to be off of Division Street, I think, or State and Division. Okay. And, and I was already uh, 
starting high school, but my two brothers were still in grammar school. So it was the three of us because we were the oldest. We could we could do this sort of thing on the weekends. And my dad would take us to see these films that were really kind of weird and interesting. You know, we saw, you know, uh, The Garden of the Finzi Contini, The Nonconformist, you know, we'd see all these films and my dad, you know, we then we'd go have coffee afterwards at a little diner around the corner and talk. And uh, my mom and I saw Death in Venice, The Devils with Vanessa Redgrave. And That's I'm talking about some really powerful you yeah. know, films that were, you know, not your norm. My dad took us to go see one time The Boys in the Band. <laughs> and my mom was upset because, you know, there was homosexuality. And uh, my dad said, well, you know, they have to be exposed to all this because, you know, they, they're going to encounter it in one way or another in, the, in, in their life. Little did he know that I came <laughs> But, you know, yeah, was, you know, that sort of thing that sort of made my brothers and I actually want to leave the neighborhood. Yeah, in a lot of ways. Yeah, he showed you the outside world wanted to leave all these things. Yeah, to explore the world. But I came back because we also realized in that 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 thing was to come back. And, and I was the one the oldest and I was the one who decided I wanted to be a community organizer and an artist, you know when I got older and um, uh, my brothers went, both went to the early program at the Art Institute, but then uh, one ended up, you know, dying in the, he ended up going into the military and he got killed. And the other one, you know, had a girlfriend at a very early age and he started a family. He was just a kid. Yeah. So there was no way for him to support his family and go to school and study art. He became a factory worker and that's what he does to this day. You know, and so our paths went in different directions. But growing up in Pilsen at that time, I think I was I was a teenager. I was in uh, in high school, and I met um, I met Mario Castillo uh, before I was just in high school. My brother and I would watch him paint this mural. Little did we know it was going to be a very important mural on Halstead in eighteen. Metaphysica and another mural, and then we met. Uh, um, you know, a young guy, Marco Raya, and and I used to hang around with him. My dad thought he was after young girls, so he didn't like the fact that I was like, you know, hanging out with these real bohemians, you know, uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, you know these types of long hair, you know, and straight wearing dark glasses at all hours. He said, "Oh no, my my beautiful daughter, they're gonna like ruin her," you know, <laughs> and. Uh, so, you know, um, I met, you know, Ray Palan, that we're friends to this day, you know, uh, with, with the guys I'm telling you about, I didn't meet any women at the time that were, I met women that were doing what they were doing, but not in that capacity or were not put up on a pedestal like they were. Um, later were on- Were there any? Huh? Were there any that you knew of back then? Yeah, actually a little later, I met uh, Juanita Jaramillo from New Mexico. Nice. Dulce Pulido. And much later, I met uh, Malu Albero, who came, who was a student at the Art Institute and started working with Jaime, another guy who came. This is later, much later. Yeah. Uh, in the early, in the late 60s, when they took over the Brown Berets and a group of community people took over a settlement house known as Howell House, which was run by the, 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 the Czech societies. Um, 
the um, they made it into a Latino cultural center, Chicano cultural center called Casaslan. And that was a very important part for many of us of that age yeah. growing up there and being very, very close to Casaslan, its programs, uh, um, you know, their, their arts education programs and community and social justice issues where a lot of things were going on there. You know, you have to remember that day, the communities were really poor, really, yeah. we were really not, we didn't have garbage services. We didn't have a lot of things. So, so people organized, we didn't have jobs. People organized around issues of housing, jobs, you know, that kind of thing, uh, uh, community services. Yeah, food and education too, yeah. Um, right, the, the living conditions were just horrible. They really were. The, the neighborhood like it was a lot of those things influenced also by the black panthers and their models um yes they were but not so much by a lot of the regular community folk but by the brown berets yeah brown berets themselves were very important and i remember i wanted to be a brown beret because i thought it was so important to to fight for one's rights yeah. um my mom became an organizer through going to these meetings, I told her, you should go to these meetings. It's, it's about us. It's about women. It's about the community. My mom would say, que voy a hacer yo allá? Ugh, I only went to third grade. It doesn't matter. You have a voice, right? Well, you know what? She became this kick-ass community organizer. That's amazing. You know? She, along with a lot of the comadres, were the ones who actually, the women actually fronted a lot of the movements for the new school in the community, for better conditions. They really were. They were uh, you know, the main people there who who were the movers and shakers. And yeah, the networks of housewives, you know? Yeah, the networks of comadres. Comadres can get anything done. Mm -hmm. So the arts, uh, I, I didn't think I wanted, what I, I, I loved the painting. Later on, I, I got involved as a painter, but I'm saying what I really wanted and what I, what I knew for a long time as a kid, but I didn't realize it until I got to college was that I wanted to be a photographer. And the reason is because you have to remember back in the 60s, you know, 50s, 60s, and even 70s, you had all these wonderful photo magazines, you had Life, Look, you know, National Geographic was a real big thing when we grew yeah. up. So they were, estaba muy impresionada, you know, by the photographs, and I, I kept saying, I want to do that, that's what I want to do. So in high school, you know, I did like, you know, the, the uh, you know, school newspaper, the book club, I got a camera, my parent, my mom gave me a camera and, you know, I took some real shitty photos, but I loved it, you know, and then I took a class that was given to the kids in the summer program through UIC, which was not far, it was down the street practically, and some, some students from the photo department came in. Oh, wow. And they taught us uh, in a summer youth program, I, my brother and I signed up and we learned uh, black and white photography and developing, and so my dad said, okay, okay. Uh, we had a basement we used as a clubhouse. We had the washer and dryer, the washer. We didn't have a dryer. It was the ringer. Washer. Right, yeah. And uh, my dad said, okay, we're going to build a little dark room down there for you guys. Oh, wow. You know? And uh, there were some leaks, but you know what I'm, I like leaks. But what I'm saying is that we, he kind of like helped us a little bit. And he, yeah, was, he was really he was busy working and stuff. But he, he said anything to make sure they don't get into the gigs because, you know, we had a lot of um, gang activity back in the day, a lot of shootings. We grew up with a lot of violence in the neighborhood, yeah. a lot of shootings. We saw dead people at an early when age. When did that start? Well, you know, the gangs were always there. They just were, 
less violent. They used to do bats and chains back in the day, and then it became guns. Yeah. Also, you have to remember back in, in Pilsen in the 60s and uh, 70s, early 70s, in the 60s in particular, there was a bar on every single corner. So alcoholism was rampant amongst yeah. the community. And there were fights and there were people knifed and shot. And one time my dad uh, said, come on, come on and help me. I ran outside. I must have been like 13, 12. And there was a guy laying there in front of our house in the street with uh, like blood coming out oh, of his yeah. dirt. And we, we were just like, my brothers and I, it was like the first time we saw that in like right then and there. Yeah. And we heard a lot about it. And and we would always be ushered inside where there were shots, but I guess, uh, I don't know what happened to that guy, but I mean, you know, so experiences like that growing up. Um, and then of course the gangs were at one point, one of my brothers was enticed and I was enticed, but I was not really gang material. I was skinny, weak, not a, you know, I was not the kind of bully people, more or less I was bullied, but the gangs liked me because I was good at talking and they called me Mr. Peabody. So I would have to go over there <laughs> and do the powwows between the, you know, the talks between the girl gangs. Oh, and wow. I loved the way they look. And I think that's the first time I was falling in love with women. You know, I just loved the way they look with their sweaters. I can't their, blame you. Yeah. They were hot, you know. Yeah, they were older than me, you know. <laughs> but I never could put a name to that, you know. I never understood what that of was. Course, yeah. And um, that didn't last for long. In high school, uh, I became active. I met a group of. Uh, in '69, I was a freshman. '70, I was at Harrison High School, and there was a lot of um, racial tension between the the African American students and the Latinos, but there was also some unity because people were fighting since 69 for black studies. Yeah. And the, and the Mexican students started fighting for Chicano studies or Mexican studies, you know, or, you know, Spanish class, that kind of thing. We didn't have any of that. And uh, so I met this group, uh, they we're still friends to this day. Wow. You know, we talk on the phone. We don't see each other because of COVID, but um, uh, they were a group of kids who were very radical and very Chicano. And, and you know, I got pulled into that group and that became my group in high school. You know, in high school, a lot of people, you're either in or out, you know, you're either with the populars, which wasn't for me, but, or you were a jock or you were a greaser because we still had the greasers, you know, yeah. or you were the gangs, you know. Uh, so every every kid goes through some sort of weird stuff like that. I think they might still have a little bit of that. Um, they do actually. I teach in the yeah, school. Yeah, different, <laughs> different terms. Different terms, right? You know. Uh, so that's where my activism became even more. I became more radicalized in terms of like what was happening. We were anti-war. Uh, we uh, we demonstrated against the war. We wore black armbands. We were threatened with expulsion. We printed a little news news leaf letter, you know, called uh -huh. La Nova Onda, you know, and we tried to get solidarity with the black students. A lot of it happened. It happened in my senior year in '73, and you know, the war was still going on in '73. It was getting towards the end, but it was still yeah. happening. And so I went to college right away. Uh, I graduated in 73 in the fall. I was at UIC, which was near my home. I wanted to escape, but my dad and mom said, no, we can only, you can only go there because- It's we don't close have enough, we can still keep I had to support myself to go to college, my brother and I. 
my brothers and sisters and I. So um, there I joined other groups and, and also there I came out in 78, you know, I, I, I discovered that, you know, that I was different, that I was queer. We didn't use the word queer. The word queer was really bad. What were you using back then? Huh? What terms were you using back then in 78? Well, there was the big old term of lesbian, you know, yeah. that was like the, you know, the big term or dyke with some people. And I remember growing up and there were a couple of women and they were, and people say, stay away from them because they're dykes. I, said, I didn't understand. I didn't know what the word meant. I was fascinated by them because they looked, one was super butch and I was always fascinated. Uh -huh. you know, and, you know, when someone said they're coming, I would run out and look for them. You know, uh -huh. I was attracted to that. Uh, not them sexually, but there was something there that Aura, was charisma, something interesting yeah. to see, you know, even though I couldn't tell my mom I was excited about seeing these women because that was a no-no, you know? Of course. You know, you had to, there was a lot of things that my friends and I who went to high school, I think half the guys I dated came out, you know, later. <laughs> That's such a common thing too for, for gays to end up dating the lesbians in high school too. Right. I mean, but I mean, we, um, you know, a lot of us remained friends. We, we formed a group called the Harrison Hornets and we, we remain friends. Not all of the people there are, are queer. Right. Or even, you know, most of them are straight, but they're good, you know, they're all good people, you know? Uh, so it's nice to have that relationship, you know, I think to people you, you, you went to school with and grew up. And um, so in college, I was very active in, uh, um, you know, anti-war movement. I joined the, um, United Front Against Imperialism. I became active in the school radio and and got my third class radio license, operator's license, and became the uh, manager of one of the hours, the Latino hour, but it was called Radio Voces. And I thought that at one time, that's what I was gonna end up doing. Yeah. I was gonna end up going into broadcasting because I really enjoyed it, you know, programming and broadcasting. But life had a whole nother thing for me. Um, I, in fact, decided to go to school and study art, study photography. And so I became a photographer and I started working at an early age in photo documentary, photojournalism. Uh, I did that for many years, uh, for like 20, almost 25 years, oh, wow. about 23, 24 years. I was working as a, uh, a documentary and, and fine art photographer and um, Worked in Latin America, worked in Mexico, worked in Peru, worked for different newspapers, including the Chicago Tribune and um, magazines, et cetera. And um, I never actually got my degree, my BFA, because I started working in the field. And so at the age of 40, I went back to school, got my BFA, what I couldn't do in 20 years, I did in a, in a year. Because, you know, you're just much more focused. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You're at a different stage in life. And people said to me, why are you going back to school if you have this great career already? I said, because I think I need to finish something I started. So I want to, and you know, it was the best thing I did, go back to school. I just uh, got reacquainted, re opened my eyes to different possibilities in photography. You know, there's always some rich discussions going on. Yeah. And uh, things, and you meet some really, you know, kick-ass professors and lots of wonderful people and students. And so um, I graduated in 97, 98, and uh, I went to Europe. By that time, I had already 
been drawing and painting, but I really wanted to do it more. My teachers in the painting department encouraged me to, to do it. Yeah. Uh, uh, Kerry Marshall, he was one of my professors. Oh, wow. me, you should just do it. Quit dicking around and do it, you know? Just paint, you know? You're painting over your photographs. You're drawing over everything. You're attaching seeds to them. God knows what. what <laughs> why don't you just do it, you know? And I said, yeah, you know, why not? So I graduated and I took myself to Europe. I, I, I never been and, and I decided that I was gonna go and, and do my first trip to Europe and spent, you know, three or four months out there. And they did. And uh, I had friends who I had met in Chicago back in the day, pre-computer, we did everything by fax. Mm -hmm. That was the fastest way to get something done. And so they all said, come on down, you know, come on down. We, aquí tienes tu casa, you know. You know, I had a friend in Spain, a friend in France, and a friend in Italy. And um, I went to the Netherlands first. I went to Amsterdam through mm -hmm. a mutual friend. And uh, awesome. I mean, I, I spent, you know, probably close to four months just working under the table sometimes. Um, you know, learning a lot and meeting great people, cooking, that's another one of my passions. One of my friends owned a restaurant and bar, La Dolce Vita and La Piazza del Carmine in, in, in Firenze. And, and you know, I think it was the best experience. Other, I looked at a lot of art and I made up my mind while I was down there that I would switch uh, from photography to painting and it took me a few years, but I did it. And people, I think a lot of people were uh, shocked and also a bit disappointed because they didn't see me as someone painting. Why was it hard for you to switch? Or what was the thing in your head that, that made it difficult to do that switch? Can you identify that now? Um, well, I kept working as a photographer. That was like bread and butter. Yeah. <laughs> uh, plus I had a lot of money invested in equipment and things and but I, I ended up like changing my whole life around where I had a studio it was a photo studio in Wicker Park in this area called Wicker Park which was going through some severe gentrification oh my gosh, yes. at the time and uh, and I decided to make it into a, a gallery and painting space because I had two rooms one would function as a gallery the back would be my studio and workspace eventually uh, nine years later I moved in there to live but that's a whole nother story. And um, I think um, it, it just takes time to balance and to make decisions like that because they weren't made lightly. I was still getting calls to do projects in photography and, and I gradually moved over. And I have been doing painting illustration for 24 years. So I kind of like equal amount of time, you know? Yeah and been doing art for, I don't know, 50 years, uh, 45 years. So, you know, I mean, uh, it was good. I didn't look back, I didn't regret it. And then there was a point where I completely stopped doing photography. I was didn't miss it. That? Huh? Was there a reason for that? You just sort of reached the end of that experience? I just decided that I couldn't balance the two. I needed mm. to really focus on one and not the other. Yeah. It took a, a lot of uh, um, energy for me. This is the way I've always been all my life. I don't know why. It, is. it took a lot of energy for me to do both at the same time and balance them well. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, so I decided that um, 
and I needed to learn how to be become a, a painter, a better painter. And I and I loved illustration. That's what I've been doing. And I'm a teaching artist and been a teaching artist for close to 40 years. And I just think, you know, my work that I've done has been a combination of those two things. And of course, for the last 20, 22 years, it's been mainly uh, doing drawing, painting, and, you know, um, 3D sculpture object and printmaking. But I'm so happy because photography found me again. Yeah. So I started to, to, to photograph, make photographs again. And this just happened very recently, like this past year uh, during the pandemic. Um, not because it was pandemic. I didn't think about it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about it now. I think because I had to, I have health issues. I'm a, I'm a 35 year survivor of cancer. And I, I have battled and I'm currently battling cancer and, and, uh, and uh, embolism right now. Yeah. So I have um, four, four different kinds of cancer that I've been fighting for all those years. And uh, unfortunately, I keep having recurrences and it's exhausting, oh, <laughs> not to yeah. say the least. <laughs> yeah, I would imagine. But um, uh, what was I saying? So we were talking about yeah, how COVID led into going back into photography. I, yeah, I had to I had to do find a way to exercise. Uh, I was gaining a lot of weight and I have the health issues and my doctor, you need to walk. Yeah. So I, I started walking in the spring and summer this past year and I kept taking pictures with my phone, which I never used my phone to really take pictures because I thought it was atrocious. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so old school and, and kind of a uh, mamona and pain in the ass when I think I have to do it this way. It's not work. I hate when people take pictures with their phones and think they're photographers. You know, I had all these prejuicios, you know, uh -huh. but I broke all of them. I did the same thing. And it turns out that I realized why am I struggling with some of these photos? Because I recognize uh, I never let go of photography internally. I never let go of it socially in the sense that and culturally in a sense that I've always I went to photo shows I know lots of photographers you know great support for photography in all of its forms and so that was always inside of me yeah and so when I look would look at a photograph I was incredibly critical of my work with uh with the camera plus I had a really not a great iPhone so I had a 35 millimeter that was given to me the previous year as a present, a real nice camera, Nikon, whatever, uh, SL digital SLR, but I didn't know how to use it. I have to say that I was afraid of it. I said, I guess I could use it in manual. Once I picked it up and started using it, I couldn't put it down. So that's yeah. what happened. That's I ended up photographing every day. And I, I ended up first, of course, doing, my walks were like at six, 6.30 in the morning. Uh, really beautiful early morning light just you know yeah um so mostly it looked like armageddon abandoned buildings because you don't see too many people yeah they weren't around <laughs> i mean you know people go to work but you don't see people on the streets and my friends were like why is you know why is it so lonely oh my god diana you're so you're so depressed. No, these are beautiful. Look at the light. Look at the factories. You, you know, I would say all oh, this area was all factories. You know, all of our parents and relatives worked in these places. Yeah. They're now lofts, Chingao. You know, we can't even live here anymore. And so I, I didn't realize that I was documenting again. And uh, with the with the SLR, 
of course I was getting better results and different course, results. Yeah, I mean, I found. And, and I, I, I jumped on tutorials and, you know, you know, I had to teach myself digital because I didn't understand it. And I ended up loving it. And so I do both. I do film and digital now. But um, like I said, since last summer, I've been constantly, I took a little break because the COVID became worse. Yeah. And then it got too cold to photograph people. I started doing portraits. So that's what I've been working on is portraiture. The current work is, um, you know, I continue to draw and paint and I do commissions and stuff like that. And from time to time, a book cover and magazine. But the work in photography has been important to me because I me auto puse una auto propuesta para hacer to make uh, a project to do a project which I decided that I would reconnect with people I haven't seen in 35 years who I had previously photographed within oh, wow. 20, 25, and 30, 35 years, and photograph them again. Some people have passed away but most people are still alive. And I had this urgency to do this. So I began this project and that's what I've been doing. In the midst of all this, I posted these photos and people have been calling me to do projects. And I decided I can't do them all, I have to choose. So I, I got a job uh, where I work as a teaching artist for different organizations, one in particular got a big grant from the Humanities Council and they asked me if I wanted to teach a photojournalism class in the high school. And at first I said, no, because, you know, it's been many years since I taught photography, especially photojournalism, but it would be working with a really cool teacher that I knew and I said, sure, let's do it. And it was the best thing. So I really got back into it. Oh, I love that. Sort of what I'm doing now, you know, and, and, uh, um, in fact, uh, with some help, because I can't carry a lot of heavy things right now because of the, this is what happened, I have an, a little assist, an assistant, and they're going to help me photograph uh, someone very important to me in the community. One of the things I noticed that in my work and in the projects that I've been involved in, no one talks about LGBTQ and trans lives and how important that is in terms of our history as my uh, immigrants, and that the project I'm working on now with these other uh, artists is about two communities connecting an African-American community and uh, the Latino community and, and uh, you know, like planting semillas, right? And, oh, wow. and, uh, and the great migration and the immigration and migration of Latinos to the Midwest. And I said, why are we not hearing about, uh, you know, LGBTQ, and trans because they definitely were there yeah. <laughs> across yeah. the borders always, as well. Yeah. Been, yeah. And even this, you know, transnational relationships, you know. And, uh, the, you know, I don't think people really thought about it, but there's another uh, queer artist on, in the group, Moises, and he, he was like, Diana, you're absolutely right. And I said, well, I don't have a lot of time now because we're almost finishing the project, but I am going to you know, have that presence in this project because it's important. And Is this it Salazar? Yeah, I met him for the first time. I love his work so much, you know, and uh, yeah. And so he's working with us on this this project um, at, at a place called Chicago Artist uh, Department, CAD, on Halsted. And um, I'm not a lead artist in this. We're just invited guests, uh, guest artists to work with in collaboration with the lead artists, but lead artists, there are two of them. But so that's one of the projects I got involved in and that's almost completed. And um, 
previously for the kids uh, photojournalism class, myself and another teaching artist went out and did a, a series of interviews and, and, and portraits of people about the, you know, what, how they'd been living through this pandemic and what it has meant to them. And uh, the kids got a lot out of that. We did it as a modeling for them as a guide. And um, like I said, a lot of people are interested in the work in itself um, and the work I'm doing now. Uh, some people who I've known from the past in photography in the photography world are very pleased that I went back to doing some work like this. Um, as I said, it's a beginning. You yeah. know, I'm not quite sure where it's taking me yet. I haven't really thought it out, but I do know that the, the self-proposed project on uh, reconnecting with these people who are, a lot of them are artists that I've, I've photographed in the past is very important because we're, we're, we're dying, we're disappearing. We're in our 60s and 70s, okay? Yeah, no, I, I think that's such an important yeah. project to keep those histories yeah. alive and to leave traces of, of us being mm -hmm. here. So it's an ongoing project. Um, it's not a short term term like the, the, the project that I'm doing with the other artists right now, but it's something that I'm definitely going to have to look for funding for it. Uh, but I mean, it's been great to, to, to come back to it. It's like full circle. And all the while, I'm still painting and drawing and I just finished a small commission and finished two book covers and you know so I'm real busy. I mean, you really, are busy, huh? <laughs> busy, more busy than before the pandemic. I don't understand. Now, Diana, one thing I really <laughs> want to touch on you 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 sort of mentioned it a little bit, but I'm really interested in this idea of starting a project without an endpoint, especially when it comes to like projects that have sort of a documentary bent to them. And, you know, uh, you and I were talking before we started the recording about one of my first experiences of your work at um, College Arts Association conference, where I think uh, when somebody was talking, I can't remember who it was, was it Sarita or was it Nicole? We're talking about your archives of images Nicole, of your life in Chicago. Yeah, that's a big project. Actually, that's a project we've been, I've been working with Nicole and another professor for the last three, three and a half years, we've been working on our... And for the people listening, that's Nicole Marroquin, who we're also interviewing too. Right, Nicole Marroquin. Um, it's funny, you know, I met Nicole probably around 2010 or maybe before. And uh, she had a studio at Casaslan. And uh, so we met and, you know, we hit it off and we know a lot of people in common. This world, I live in in Pilsen with artists is very, very small. We know everybody knows everybody or know who they they are. Um, and both of your interests map really well together. The things that she's researching and and you've well, you know. yeah, I, it was interesting that she started to do the, uh, you know, the school walkouts and and it's funny because I participated also in some of those things. So she, when she found this out, she's like, "Holy cow! Why didn't we talk before? <laughs> I don't know." I told her we we really didn't know each other, you know. So I when I told her one day, I don't even know how it really came about. I told her, you know, I, I have, I used to be a photographer and I have a lot of images. And really, she said, where are they? Oh, well, some are in my house and the majority are in a friend's basement. They've been there for too many years. She says, what? We need to rescue those. Nicole's a very like go-getter, you know? Uh-huh. And I said, I don't know. No, they're going to disappear, Diana. I wonder if they're even still good. I said, well, I put them in metal boxes. And we ended up, Nicole took it upon herself, 
push me into it and said, we're going to rescue this and we're going to look at this because you probably, when they called in, realized there were over 5,000 negatives in there, uh, photos, wow. negatives, ephemera, you know. And I still found more stuff here that I haven't even given over to Nicole because one, I'm actually scanning the small stuff myself. I got a scanner. I'm actually using the work, you know, because I'm I'm I'm, I'm using it for projects, for things, yeah. for references. So things keep popping up out of the woodwork. And uh, Nicole was, I think there were like 8,000 mass counting. Oh, wow. And Nicole was, uh, you know, she, she enlisted the help of her daughter and they both, you know, put on hazmat suits and stuff because this was a real crappy basement, you know, stuff was, I couldn't go in there because of my lungs. I had yeah. lung cancer, I couldn't go in there. Um, and you know, the stuff was all good. <laughs> you know? oh, Dios. The majority of things, almost everything, yeah, there's dust uh, and stuff like that, but it's all good no mold, maybe a couple things got attacked. But I mean, we, so now we're working with a group of people. It's a big project. We're, yeah. we've been working with um, a lab in Chicago that does community lab photo work. They've been very gracious, very wonderful to us. Uh, they're the ones that printed the work for DePaul, for the DePaul exhibition, yeah. Latinx uh, American. Latinx American yeah. And, um, uh, so there's a lot of interest in the work because Hinda's been writing about it. She published something in Dialogo from uh, DePaul's uh, magazine. And so there's lots and lots of buzz. It's a little overwhelming for me because I'm not used to this, uh, all this Get stuff. Attention, yeah. I'm not used to it at all. I don't like it one bit. And uh, But Nicole and, 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 and Hinda Saif have been working diligently on different aspects of the archives and interviews and hoping to have a book uh, about the work and a, a little bit about my life, right? So uh, what's nice right now is that Nicole, and she'll tell you more about it, I suppose. I don't want to go into a lot of things, but she has actually put together a course that's being offered through her at SAIC on my work. And she's gotten very good people to come in to speak in the, in the class. I met one of the young photojournalists the other day who I admire a lot. Sebastian Hidalgo, uh, amazing work, amazing kid. He's 20 something. Yeah. And um, a wonderful students she has in the class. So I, I, I don't know. I'm kind of, I'm super honored that they're doing that. Uh, and, and you, you know, feel, yeah. How do you feel about those images, looking at them again now and sort of having now the, um, um, the sort of the hindsight when seeing them? Because I will say, you know, as a queer person myself, I am so thankful for people like you who took the time and understood how important it was to document these things. Because otherwise, people like myself wouldn't have a sense of our history. Right. And it's just so important that, you know, these archives exist, you know, and that these projects that people just had in their basements get, a, you know, the new generations to take a look at them. And it's also really inspiring as an artist to... Mm -hmm to see that the work isn't always done when you think the timeline for the work to be discovered and, and understood and experienced doesn't always match up with what you want. You know what I mean? No, it never really does. But I, I, I was, I'll be honest, I was conscientious of the fact that one for in a very early period during, you know, 
doing this work and storing it, I knew that what I wanted eventually was with the work to be used for educational purposes. And that has been on my mind for many, many, many years. But I never had the resources. I was moving from Mexico to Chicago. I was doing a bunch of stuff. My health got in the, my health issues got in the way tremendously in my life. Spent a lot of energy and time recuperating, trying to just survive and live because of my health issues. As I say, threw the biggest wrench in the world at me. Yeah. And uh, so that took up a lot of time with no, no art making for periods of time. Right. You know, trying to get back on my feet, making art, trying to get back on my feet, literally and physically, uh, after all the surgeries and all the stuff and the chemos and the radiation, it was just oh. awful. Yeah. And I think, you know, um, a lot of things were put on the back burner, you know, yeah. for good reason. Uh, but um, the idea that the work should be educational has been on my mind since even before I started it. Um, and thank God that this person, it's an ex of mine, who had the, the, the foresight to like, keep it, you know, and store it. But after a while, she said, when are you going to get your goddamn shit out of my <laughs> <laughs> And I said, uh, we got to do that. So Nicole yeah. was really, you know, the, you know, El Motor, you know, who started this whole thing and said, let's get this now, Diana. It's now or never. Yeah. You know? I said, yeah, I might kick the bucket. I don't know if I'm going to survive till next year. Let's do it now, you know. So once she discovered all this stuff, it was like a treasure trove. She said, my God, why haven't we done this before? Look what you have here. I mean, yeah, this is history. This is, you know, this is so important, you know, and it must be strange, you know, if you're thinking of them as like, you know, stuff that you had in, you know, your excess basement, but for newer generations, for my generation, for generations, uh, you know, younger than me as well, you know, having the ability to see our people create images of our people um, is 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 incredible. It's it's just it's so encouraging and it's so beautiful to, to be able to see them because otherwise they wouldn't be there. You know what yeah. I mean? A lot of the work um, there's a huge periods of time in the work that uh, have to, you know, as a as a person who was documenting and as a photographer, a lot of times I couldn't separate myself, my personal yeah. life from my work, and that happens to many artists. Yeah actually many many and um there are a lot of you know i moved when i moved to mexico there was a lot of work based on the gay community i lived in a in a in a community with of women and um i was very active in the gay and lesbian movement in mexico city yeah. for three years um and you know a lot of the work there is really important work and yeah. right now i'm, I'm making certain connections with women from Mexico that I haven't been in touch with in a long time. And one of them who was my roommate became the first uh, diputada. Oh, wow. The uh, lesbian diputada, in, you know, uh, in, in the government in uh, Mexico City, Patria. And uh, I met many people, you know, when I was there, I was very, very active. And I felt very at home there and I felt very much a part of that family, that familia. And, uh, course then coming back to the states um you know prior to that and a little after that I, I did a lot of work around the you know uh gay and lesbian community here in chicago documenting um you know there's a lot of photos when we still had raids you yeah. know in bars and uh 
Nicole's like, what's going on in here? I don't understand. What are they protesting? I said, we were getting raided left and right. We're talking in the 80s. AIDS was full blown. You know, there was so much going on, you know, act up, everything. And uh, she was like, why haven't you told anybody about it? It was just my life. I was living my life. I said, why do I have to tell people? You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but uh, I learned, I think, looking back, you know, looking back at a lot of work. And last night I was editing, editing photos um, and, and sending a letter to Sandra Cisneros. I used to be uh, her photographer for, oh for, for a few years. I have lots of work on her. And right now I'm working on a very, very small, I was asked to write a letter. She's being inducted in uh, the, the Chicago Literary Hall of Fame. And oh, they wow. asked me to write a letter and contribute some work about how I met Sandra. So, as I said, I don't have Alzheimer's, but as you get older, your memory, you don't remember everything. And most of my work, luckily, has been dated and documented. Something I learned through the profession of uh, going to school and being a documentary photographer, the importance of that. And others I did not. So now everything I do now, document a thumbnail sketch yeah. and date it you know <laughs> because nice. i realized the importance that's incredibly good advice and i think you know one of the things i'm really worried worried about for my generation and generations below me also is that all of this media that we're creating digital media there's no physical component so what's going to happen to it you know it's yeah it's, um it's something that can be really overwhelming to think about that you know, all of the photos that I've taken on my phone and my friends and my experiences and everything could just disappear because some company owns the servers or something. Right, and, they're uh, not forever, that's for sure. Yeah. The digital is not also forever. Exactly, on the other side of that coin, we don't know what's going to happen with technology later on. You know, there's a utopic ideas of maybe what could happen and maybe that, you know, that stuff won't be lost forever or something, but yeah, it's, um, it definitely feels like a sort of like an end of history or an end of like being able to document yourself in the same way. There's a lack of permanence. Yeah, the lack of permanence. I think one of the things I realized through all this experience of working with Nicole and Hinda and others on the archive is that um, how important it is for artists, which many of us do not do, is the documentation process. Yeah. Even if it's digital, a lot of people are on the impression that it's gonna last forever because it's digital but that also degrades. So the yeah. idea of having backups and doing things is really important. Uh, yeah. And one, it takes discipline. I think a lot of people just use their phone and don't realize, and then they wanna go back and do some, it's hard. Uh, I my, my advice now more than ever is everything must be dated and, and, and put the city you took it in or the place because your memory only goes so far. Yeah. I mean, I look at photos and I don't even remember taking that. Well, and I also I think that those, these, these technologies also affect the way that you, that your memory works, you know? I think that since I started really having like an iPhone and documenting things on that, my memory is so much worse because I don't need to have that memory, you know? I can just Google <laughs> it if I have a question about something. So it really affects how your brain works, this, these digital... Yeah. It does. It does. It, it it gives you the false illusion that everything's at your fingertips anytime yep. you want, and you still have to use your brain. Let me tell you. Yep. Uh, you still have to be analog in many ways because that's who we are. We yep. really are. We're analog creatures by design, but it doesn't mean we can't learn other things. And we have done that. Look at us where we've gotten so far in the twenty first century. But. Um, 
Yeah, so there's a lot of, the other question is archiving your work. I'm not all artists do it, not many artists, and the importance of that, and we've, we're on a panel with Nicole and others, the Library Association, and you know they wanted to know what they could do as white librarians, the majority, uh, how could they, and I said, well, one is to open your doors and really be supportive of, you know, people of color, you know, of, uh, you know, African-American and, uh, you know, Latino, Latinx people who uh, have services available because, you know, th there is none, you got to create them. Yeah. And, and the li big libraries are not going to say, have you walk off the street and say, here's my stuff, document, no. archive it. No, it doesn't work that way. <laughs> you, you know, any institution doesn't work. So how can institutions support us? We have to make all the, the ruckus, yeah. you know, the stinking ruckus for them to, uh, to even be open to that, that I, those ideas. And that's why the work that we're all doing, mm -hmm. you, everyone else, the DePaul Museum, the artists, it's so important. Uh, the work that yeah. we're doing more than ever because we realized, you know, speaking of canons, we're not included in those canons, you know, we have to create our own. Uh, and we've been there, we've been doing work. Look at, you know, Martin Ramirez's work, you know, uh, the outsider, so-called outsider artist, you know, and others whose work, uh, you know, many, many people, uh, not just, never mind the, the, the famous, you know, Latino artists or Mexican or Latin American artists, never mind, you know, Wilfredo Lamb or, um, you know, Diego Rivera or Frida, you know, but I mean, the everyday, the people doing work like Moises, you know, like Frankie Pina, who I'm photographing on Wednesday, I am so excited because it'll be the first only people person in my, in my, um, in the current work that I'm doing with this group, that's a, a, a trans person, a person in transition, that I really feel that is so underrepresented. And he told, you know, they told me the average age for trans women in Latin America here is like 35 years. Yeah, it's, 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 I was in shock when he told me that because I don't know enough. I don't horrible, know. Yeah, and they need so much of our support, and it's so important to support them, and not just you know. I uh, I donate monthly to organizations that support the trans community because they just need our help. We yeah, need, we need to stand up for them and we need to support them, mm -hmm. and that means money. That doesn't just mean like you know, I put like a like a picture on my social media profile. That means money. That means financial support. That means talking to them. That means helping them get their stories out. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah, it's, it's so important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, I mean, I mean, talk about you know uh, doing doing a lot of work right now and being really have a full plate. Um, I I think that's what keeps me, despite my issues, uh, you know, as my mom used to say, "Todavía dando lata," you know, mm -hmm. uh, because I wouldn't have it any other way. Let me tell yeah. you. Yes, I do find time to rest. Yes, I have to. Only the human body can only do so much without sleep and things like that. But I think, you know, as I said, well, you know, I'm happiest when not so much I have a deadline from one day to the next. I'm happiest that I'm doing the things that I am passionate about, which I've been extremely fortunate to do this in my life, you know, to, to do artwork yeah. for a living, you know, and to do it with so much pleasure, you know. 
I mean, there are ups and downs. There's even moments of, you know, like <laughs> writer's block, or, you know, artist block, but yeah. that's normal. You know, but what I'm saying is, uh, who wouldn't have it any other way? Yeah. You know? And I think some, another term that has come up a lot in this call or in this conversation with you is, you know, plantando semillas or dejando semillas por ahí. And it's so important to just leave those little traces, even if we don't know where it's going to end up, mm -hmm. um, to leave those traces of other people, of, you know, your friends, fellow collaborators, uh, people that you see around you, because sometimes that's the best that we can do. And it's just important to keep those histories alive or to keep links to them, you know? It's getting cold. <laughs> it's like old building. Eesh. Yeah, I mean, this weather is horrible. <laughs> are you in Chicago? Where are you? Where do you I'm live? in Chicago. I'm in Avondale. <clears throat> oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, just north of Logan Square. Oh, I know exactly where Avondale is. I, I just drove by there the other day. I first time I took my car out in two weeks, I had to get it jumped. I had to go deliver art supplies to my students. Yeah, I didn't know you lived in Chicago. Yep, I've uh, it's almost eleven years that I've been here. I moved here in two thousand and nine. Mm -hmm. So I got to see, you know, the last grasp of like Hilson or Wicker Park as an art center. I remember there were still a bunch of. Uh, studio buildings there uh when i first moved here along division uh, yeah i well i had my studio for 10 years in the in the flat iron yeah and i lived for like eight years around uh two blocks away i had both at the time when you could still afford it oh wow i didn't know how i did it but i did i had a good job and i spent most of my time doing artwork full time but i mean almost all the time and yeah. uh I have great memories of that place. I did not care for the neighborhood, the way it was loud and turning. And I was getting older too. I couldn't, I couldn't hang anymore. I said, I need a, need to get out of here. <laughs> Understandable, yeah. And then, you know, I lived in Pilsen for a little bit too. Got to see that change and just experience, you know, what an incredible neighborhood that is. But, you know, that Mexican community was one of the things also that, you know, when I had to choose a grad school that really sort of brought me to Chicago, that there was such a big, Mexican community in Pilsen and in so many neighborhoods in Chicago have so yeah. many, uh, such of a huge Mexican presence. That was a yeah, huge a lot, yeah. a lot. Where did you go to grad school? SAIC. Okay, yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. I know lots of people who, you know, from New Mexico, from Texas, from other places that are. Uh, it's good to see. Uh, it's refreshing to see more La Latinos at SAIC yeah. over the years. It's good to have a couple of great professors there. We have Salvador Jimenez now, oh, he's great. of course, yeah. Nicole, uh, and, you know, because it's far and few in between that have been able to stay there. And, you yeah. know, yeah, so, I mean, I, be, you know, yeah. I taught there for a little bit, but it was not a friendly environment at no, all. It's not. Uh, you know, it, really, it really pushed me out. And that's a, that's, <laughs> I'll toot my own horn. That's their loss, really. What are you doing now? It is. What are you doing? I have now? a corporate job. I have a boring job, and then you know that allows me to 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 support myself and make art, and spend money on you know having this podcast or you know yeah. What made you do this podcast? Uh, why did you start this podcast? Because I felt a sense of responsibility to my community. I, I knew that I had the skills, the training, and the ability to do it, and that I didn't see that anybody else was doing it. So mm -hmm. I thought, well, I can do it. You know, even if it's not perfect, even if I, you know, even if I struggle through it sometimes, it's better than nothing. And it's, I think it's really important to, uh, yeah, to feel that sense of responsibility to your community and to younger generations and to leaving a trace in the world. Right. Uh, and, you know, the reality is that not all of our work fits into, you know, the museum or the gallery world. And nope. it doesn't mean that it's not good or that it's not important. It just means that 
sometimes you have to create your own your own path right yeah and and you know to think that some kids are i think a bit misguided in the sense that they go to art school and they're going to be in a big gallery or something is not necessarily the case you know and uh what a lot of people find out after art school is very hard to get a job in the art yeah. or to create art. Um, I always, I tell my students, you know, school, art school is not for everyone, but I'll tell you one thing, what it's good for, use the hell out of it because they have all these resources. You're not going to find the equipment and stuff. Exactly. It's that when you're out of school. Uh, and that's where you get some great education, you know, and then if you're lucky, you'll get some, some badass teachers, you know, yeah. If you're lucky, because not all of them are like that too. <laughs> not at all. No, I mean, I'm painting, it, I'm painting it mildly, you know. I mean, you know, being trying to be nice here a little bit. Yeah, but, you're being too kind to art schools. <laughs> I am, but you know, I graduated from UIC, and I I still think it's a it's a good school. I don't know how the photo program is doing these days. It had this tremendous photography program when I was there. Well, many of the teachers came from IIT. You know, previous yeah. Bauhaus, and they all were. I mean, I'm talking about, uh, you know, uh, some of them, they just like died. They were like in the 80s, yeah. you know, and um, and some others died because of health, you know. But I mean, I had some great professors. I had Dan Ramirez, you know, for color theory and uh, painting. I had uh, James Carey Marshall uh, in the art department for drawing and, and, and discussion. Uh, and uh, and painting, and I had then, um, you know, uh, I did as a when I and, um, forgot his name. A couple of people who were abstract painters. I I started out doing abstract, not because I thought it was easy, because I've always liked it. Yeah, but it was hard. I just thought, oh well, it shouldn't be as you know. I was not very good at drawing the figure. I got better as I went along many years because, you know, I took classes <laughs> on my own and. Uh, and then I became a teacher, so I had to know how to, you know, draw, you know, how to do proportions and things. And that's been, I love doing just those, those art classes, those basic art classes. I love, you know, I do too many different things now in teaching that doesn't take me back to doing just art. Yeah. And I love doing art right now. I'm teaching, you know, uh, I did a landscape and painting class, you know, and uh, I did, you know, I, I do a lot of, um, you know, portrait drawing classes. And, I, you know, for mostly for my adult students who are through museums and agencies. And so it's nice. And I have kids too, that come in, but I, I teach mainly classes that are interesting. You know, I teach a, a class uh, that I kind of developed uh, about six years ago called Adelitas at first. It was a portrait class. And I had a lot of young girls in my, in my class, fourth, fifth and sixth graders. And then the, I, I kept telling my boss, you know, this Adelitas, you know, goes across gender. And so I started to do some research and I came up with a curriculum for them that would incorporate LGBTQ ancestors and women and trans people, uh, uh, trans uh, community in the course. And now it's, I teach it with uh, my trans colleague, it's called Adelitas, uh, Women and Femmes of Courage. Nice. And now we teach it in oh. high schools to the GSAs. Uh, it's, this is our third year. And now that the schools now have where they need to incorporate curriculum on LGBTQ history and movements, um, movement, um, 
were sort of like consultants to them for developing these curriculums, you know. And so I'm very happy that um, the ideas I had for this pro this class and the initial curriculum is being used in such a way. Uh, and also it's gotten me a job working with uh, kids in the GSAs, which are the Gates Student uh, Straight Alliances in the high schools. So yeah, it's it's been it's been quite a ride, you know, very different work. And then of course doing printmaking on my own, working with uh, Instituto Grafico de Chicago, uh, contributing and being collaborated with them. I collaborate with Contratiempo since God knows how many years now. In fact, Frankie, who I'm gonna photograph, uh, is the, one of the original founders of Contratiempo. And when I met them, they were a director of Sorros uh, y Erizos and many, I have a long history with writers. I, I was a photographer for many writers in Chicago. And I continue to have those great relationships with them, uh, even if some of them don't live in Chicago. So I'm happy, you know, I'm not happy about my health, but I think this is the medicine I need besides the drugs that I'm taking and stuff, the other medicine that helps me cope with the- Yeah, the creativity, immunity, yeah. it's, yeah. Diana. Do you have any questions? I just rambled on the whole time. No, I mean, I had a bunch of questions, but you answered every single one. So, <laughs> so let's maybe let's let's maybe wrap it up. And uh, let's see. Uh, I, I always like to ask these questions. Um, I I think I might know what you're going to say, or you already gave an answer to this. But what piece of advice has really sort of stuck with you in your career, or what kind of advice do you think would have been really helpful for you when you were younger? You mentioned, for example, Carrie James Marshall telling you to just go ahead and do it. Just stop. Yeah, I think, I think um, sort of let go of preconceived notions, if you can, of what you think you might can do or what people in the art world or through the arts expect, think you expect for you to do mm -hmm. and just do, do it because that's the only way you're going to find out what, what you're capable of. And in and, and, and paths and directions change. Yeah. They're not they're not uh, frozen or set in stone. I mean, I think we have ideas about what we want to do, and that's normal. That's yeah. that's something we that's a trait we have. But what happens is we go on divergent paths in order to find the one we really are um, that really is is the best for us. So my advice is to not stick to one thing. Obviously, learn a craft. Uh, learn, you know, you, the processes of creating something, or if you want to get involved in lithography, for example, but it may not be the thing you all always do 100% or photography, but explore other ways of doing art and making art and collaborating with what you know already and with others. Also, uh, learn how to work with others. Some That's of us really don't really play good. well with others, but we can learn, you know. That's really good advice. Where can people find you online? Where can they find I more? Have, I have an Instagram uh, okay. at Pilsenita, P I L S E N I T A. And I also have a blog site. It's very old, but I love it. It's uh, I, I'm not quite sure how to change it to the newer one. I don't want to lose my stuff. It's uh, but I will eventually. Uh, it's called um, uh, Ar Diana Solis Arte Papel blogspot.com. And that's uh, actually something I've been working on pretty steadily is updating it. Nice. Um, and there are other sites in there. I have a Facebook page, but my Facebook art pages, I haven't really worked <laughs> on it in like about three or four years. So I have to get cracking. I think I have a young person do that for me. That's really good at doing all that. 
There we go. And um... <laughs> this year, you know, as we sort of mentioned a bunch about it also, it's been an incredibly difficult year in so many ways, but I always want to end up on a high note or end the podcast on a high note, the interview. What is it that you're most excited about in 2021? And we talked about, you know, the, the pandemic and Pilsen project. Um, but what is it that, the, 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 that has you really excited for the future? Photography. To continue to do it. And uh, I see um, a lot of very, very interesting projects that not only take me back to my past, but doing it in a whole nother light and also with fresh eyes. I'm learning. That's great. That's a great place to be. Diana, thank you so much for your time. This is such an incredible conversation. So I really want to thank you for your time. Gracias, Ivan. It was a pleasure. Thank you. And that is our interview with the incredible Diana Solis. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Before we leave, some thanks to Natalie Murillo, La Spacer, for our theme music. Go check her out at laspacer.com. Archives and Futures, a podcast for future generations, is produced, recorded, researched, and edited by me, Ivan Lozano, in Chicago, Illinois. Check out my work at ivanlozano.net or Ivan Lozano Studio on IG. Thank you for listening to this episode. And until next time for our final episode of the season. Bye, everyone.